At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen Day. We have a very special guest, Dr. Keita Franklin, who is the uh, co-director of the Columbia Lighthouse Project and an executive at Deloitte. Good afternoon. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, of course. So give me a little bit of, uh, you were in the Army, I believe. Give me some background on you so we can give our listeners some context before we start chopping it up. Yeah, for sure. No, I was um, I'm humbled by all that the service members in uniform do. I was a civilian, though, mm. um, serving the Army and um, a number of the other branches of the military as a social worker. So I sort of came into the military system um, right before 9-11, doing mental health work for initially the Air Force. And, you know, we were a military family, so we traveled and um, with each assignment. And so I followed um followed that line from i we were out at mccord air force base mm -hmm. and then spent some time in stuttgart germany working for army community service and leading some uh regional level programming out there um and then i was here at fort belvoir also working with the army troops um uh also throughout the the middle of the war effort and uh, finished a phd in social work and studied the impact of post-traumatic stress and trauma on military families my area was really focused on you know how does combat exposure impact your relationship with your significant other or your child and then i i did lead behavioral health programming for the marine corps um for just under six years before before moving into a more of a leadership role at the pentagon leading suicide prevention for the dod and also spent time at the VA as my last federal assignment um, before going into private sector. But at the VA, I was also leading suicide prevention for the, for the department. That's a lot. Yeah, lots of different mental health type assignments, mm. but all focused on taking care of, of active duty troops and their families. Sure, yeah. Um, so you, you said you started right before 9-11? July, yes. So the, uh, the exposure of the average troop, as it were, would have been pretty limited 
to post-traumatic stress at that time. You would have seen some 10th Mountain, 101st and 82nd people who had deployed to Kosovo and shit like that in the late 90s. But for the most part, uh, and, and then special operators as well, but even even special operators didn't see nearly as much uh, combat as they did starting in October of 2001. Um, how did you see things change from pre-9-11 to post-9-11, I guess? Yeah, it's such a good question. You know, I think before 9-11, those of us that worked in the field were largely working with families around, you know, what we called like, uh, you know, transitioning from one base to another and, you know, the stressors of the moves and how just, you know, how how detrimental that could be to families or or to ch children or we would focus on, you know, your traditional sort of garrison based stress management with training environments or high operations tempo at the base level. And even if there were, you know, deployments, there wasn't as much of a focus on the factor of safety, mm. the fact that, you know, service servicemen and women might go and, and lose their life or lose, you know, come back catastrophically injured. That wasn't really so much of a focus then. It was really just dealing with parental absence for a few months here and there. And how do we keep the family constitution in place? Mm -hmm. So you were, th this was more like traditional uh, LCSW work where you're trying to yeah. br bridge divides between people trying to live and communicate with one another. Now that's quite a bit different under normal, I, I would call moving around a lot normal circumstances. I did that as a child. Uh, my dad was in the military, but not at the time. We just happened to move around a lot. So that's something that, okay. that's something that surfaces for uh, quite a bit of people, especially these days, right? Even outside of the military. Right. Um, <clears throat> right. It's quite a bit different um, to deploy to a foreign country, especially after 2003, when we started going to Iraq and late 2002. And then sometime in 2003 is when the IED started showing up. Right. And I think that that prolonged exposure to extreme levels of awareness and stress is what really started to break people's minds. Right. I mean, that you could, you could tell you, there's a consider, I mean, I'm, from your perspective, I assume you saw a considerable downswing in both morale and the individual and aggregate unit's ability to keep tabs on all these pressures that are going on, right? Yeah, you know, it was interesting to me early on providing services for this group because it may have been more symbolic of, of where I worked, but I was, you know, treating domestic violence and child mm. abuse. And oftentimes when people came in for care and there was like a report of abuse or whether they self-identified of needing support or someone in command referred them, um, sort of the, the domestic violence or the child abuse was really just sort of icing on the cake, I think, from like a whole array of issues under that issue that often had to deal with some of the things that you just spoke about. So we had troops returning with, um, you know, at the time we knew very little about TBI, mm. troops returning with um, the onset of PTSD in a way they had never seen before. And then it was manifesting itself in their families where they're where there were situations and, you know, by no means do I condone this behavior, but pushes and shoves and, and perhaps, you know, checking out and playing um, video games and not tending to their children. And so situations of child neglect and just all these coping mechanisms that, that weren't healthy. And so then we were seeing them in our offices for something that really wasn't targeting the real issue under the issue, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, <clears throat> It's it's a it's a difficult thing to unpack when, you know, in, in some 
in some sciences, it's a lot easier when you have um, a lot more data, I guess, because you can make, you know, the, the general thinking is the more data you have, the better you can map, you know, the better decisions you can make downstream. <clears throat> but I think here it was trying to drink from a fucking fire hose, right? For you guys, especially like all these problems are coming up all over the place. And it's one thing when it's, uh, you know, isolated events, but when it becomes pretty normal for 20 to 30% of a unit to be experiencing shit like this, now you're in trouble, right? You, we didn't have the manpower or the expertise, I guess, uh, in a lot of, in a lot of situations to deal with any of this. Yeah. And you know, it wasn't just mental health struggles. We were, you know, seeing people come in, for um, substance abuse issues, both on the alcohol side and the drug side, and then family violence, which you, you know you and I just spoke about, but also sexual assault and post-traumatic stress disorder, and then also a fair amount of just depression and anxiety. And so in, in many cases, it was also coexisting together. So someone, not uncommon for someone to be struggling with TBI, um, some signs and symptoms of depression and also coping with alcohol all together. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, and you're talking about, I think this is one of the complicating issues. You're talking about people who define themselves by their ability to be in control in extreme situations. And now they're in banal situations and can't control themselves anymore. And having experienced it myself, I could tell you that there's a lot of shame involved in that, not shame for what you've done, over, I th this is something that gets confused a lot, in my opinion. I think that there's the moral injury uh, that some people deal with, but I don't think, from, from my perspective, having served in the 82nd Airborne, it wasn't a moral injury people were dealing with. It was the shame and embarrassment of not being able to handle these very, I guess, ordinary situations when if, I, if shit started going down right now, I can handle myself, and there's no question in my mind about that. But can I go to a dinner with my fucking extended family and not lose it? That's it's there's a, a level of shame and embarrassment associated with that. And I think <clears throat> one of the things that started to come about in, you know, the 2006 to 2008 period, um, as far as treatment goes, was cognitive behavioral therapy become became the norm. And a lot of folks uh, uh, got a lot of benefit from that. Um, one of the things that I think cognitive behavioral therapy illustrates really well is that the things that you think are fucked up about you are simply the skills you've learned to survive the pain and trauma that you've experienced, right? The extreme situations. Mm -hmm. Now you have to ask yourself, do these skills still serve me? I think that's an important question to ask. Um, <clears throat> and we, so when a new piece of gear comes out or a new technique to shoot a rifle comes out, uh, that's pretty easy. It's like, all right, this works. Mm -hmm. I'll do that now. And people can form almost immediately. Uh, but when it's something like this, when you have to challenge yourself, it's a lot more difficult, right? And, and like any other addict, we're addicted to adrenaline. We're addicted <laughs> to chaos. Like any other addict, you can't help that motherfucker until they want to be helped. There's nothing you can do for them until they come ready to be helped. It's a really unfortunate situation. Yeah, it's so good that you're bringing up CBT just because not a lot of people, even here we are in 2020, know about it. And, you know, I think that there's some myths out there with um, with regard to coming in and getting mental health care where people might think it's a little bit of, um, you know, witchcrafty or they might think it's just like a social hour with a therapist when in fact, you know, just like other 
other parts of science. Our field has its own science as well. And, you know, there are like what we call evidence-based practices, which one of which does involve um, cognitive behavioral therapy. And this is like a, a known treatment method that works. It's been well studied and researched in the context of people, particularly with depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, where they go in for a set number of sessions and really learn how to unpack mm their thoughts and how their thoughts lead to certain emotions and how that impacts their behavior. And, and if they feel like there are, their thoughts are always about fighting or about protection, then their emotions are connected to that. And then naturally you'll have a dinner with family and you'll sort of perhaps be in fight mode um, versus uh, fatherly mode, which you might, might need to be in at that particular moment. So it is good that you're bringing that up and I'm hoping more and more people learn about some of these therapies that you can go in and actually connect with someone who can walk you through um, different types of um, techniques, whether it's, um, you know, dealing with your sort of stinking thinking or whether it's um, reality testing some of those thoughts um, or even coming up with activities to do when you're when you're struggling. So I'm, I'm, again, I'm just thrilled that you're bringing it up and trying to help normalize it for other veterans that just might not even know what it is. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh the fight or flight thing. I know yeah. a lot of guys, myself included, <clears throat> you know, don't want to give up the fight because that's what's defined us. And I, I, you know, one of the approaches I've heard from a lot of counselors is like, well, you're not there anymore. So you don't need that anymore. I think that's absolute or shit. Frankly, uh, we're goal oriented people. We're purpose driven creatures. And without purpose, we're ultimately going to regress into depression and nihilism, right? Because we feel useless. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't help to pretend like you're a, you're a leaf eater again when you've been a meat eater alpha your whole life. I think that is a horrible way to treat people, uh, military folks with post-traumatic stress. And I think it's very, very common uh, to treat people that way. I, I, a, more, a much more efficient or effective treatment, in my opinion, is giving people that in the same way that cognitive behavioral therapy gives you the tools to recognize the oncoming storm for lack of a better phrase and the small things that trigger it. Uh, I think teaching these men and women how to enter and exit fight mode in an efficient manner that's goal oriented and rooted in facts is a very effective way to do that because some, there might come a time in your life and this is the fear for people who are going through treatment like this. And I think it's one of the biggest barriers to entry as well is that, well, what if I need to fight sometime for my mm -hmm. family in the future and now I'm not able to because of all this bullshit? I guarantee you those people are not going to give up that fight mode under any circumstances. So I think it's not true that you have to. You know what I mean? Your, your, right. your goal should be to uh, define fight mode and the parameters under which it's required, learn to enter and exit fight mode in a very efficient manner, right? That's how you become uh, lethal. That's how you become a weapon and not just a fucking dirty bomb that gets all over everything. You know what I mean? This is, this is, yeah, it's like a, about your environmental context, right? Sure. Yeah. Like what's around you and what's needed. But we do teach people about like how to identify those triggers. Like, mm. are you getting sweaty palms? Do you feel your heart racing? Are you, are you tapping your, your hand a lot? Are you, you know, we try to teach people to know like what's going on with your body physically when you're starting to gear up for that fight mode and then what's your context like are you on i-95 are you in a deployed zone are mm. you at your house in your living room like what's your context so. this episode is brought to you by blackriflecoffee.com get 20 percent off your first order with the code citizen 
Black Rifle Coffee is the best coffee company in the world. They're our buddies. But we're not just saying that. We also are customers. Join the Black Rifle Coffee Club and get fresh roasted freedom delivered straight to your door. Black Rifle Coffee Company is veteran-operated and supports America's military, law enforcement, and first responders, not just by saying they do, which is what a lot of companies do, but they actually do it. They give you the best coffee, and they also send coffee to uh, to these guys on the front lines, the people that support uh, support us. So get premium coffee delivered every month. Choose your favorite roast, whether you like light, dark, or medium. Choose the grind. Whether you want ground coffee, uh, whole beans, you can ground it yourself, which is what I recommend, or coffee rounds if you're in an office or something like that, and you need uh, Keurig. You can also choose your delivery schedule, and it'll come to you anytime you like. Members also get free shipping and access to exclusive partner discounts. Get 20% off your first order with the code CITIZEN. Go to BlackRifleCoffee.com and get those deals today. Next up is GhostBed. GhostBed.com forward slash Bros. Right now, GhostBed is offering a 40% off GhostBed bundle where you get a mattress and an adjustable base. So you don't need a code for that. You just add the mattress and the adjustable base, uh, and it'll apply auto-apply 40% off. And then anything else you add to that order, also 40% off. For everything else, you can use the code DRINKINBROS at ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKINBROS, and you're going to get 30% off everything on the site. Now, they have the best sheets, mattresses, pillows, covers, all this stuff. You can get, all, you can get an entire bedroom suite here, and you can get it all for 30% off a month. But wait, there's more. You can buy a mattress for about, you can buy the whole thing for about 35 bucks a month because they have a zero down, 0% financing plan that extends out to 60 months. That's five years, which is about the amount of time that a bedroom suite lasts. So that's a great deal, folks. Go check it out at ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros. Yeah, I think that's a really important part of, uh, of all this. Um, and I think we've spent, a lot of time try. I, I think we spent a lot of time in, in good faith trying to uh, heal people, but I'm not sure that's the right approach. I, I don't know that people are like, the, well, there's the brain lesion issue, which is becoming a big issue again now. And it's not that it ever wasn't a big issue, but it's becoming a big issue because dudes are finally starting to get their brain scanned and finding you know, the, the pre-Alzheimer's, pre-TBI, pre-chronic uh, traumatic encephalopathy situations in their heads. But the physiological factors being what they are, the people that are struggling psychologically without the other factors, um, I just don't understand the, the idea of trying to calm somebody down who's spent their life becoming uh, a, a fight-forward weapon. You know what I mean? It doesn't it, – it's – it's a lot easier to to teach somebody to manage that than it is to teach them to be a different person altogether. And I don't think, and it doesn't ring true. People like if you if you try to teach a meat eater to be a leaf eater, honestly, they're just going to have uh, uh, imposter syndrome when they're in their family with their families and stuff like that. They're just going to sit there and like, man, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, but this doesn't feel right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that breeds so much discontent and resentment for the people around you even because whether they 
animated or, or display this to you or not, you feel like I'm only doing this for them. So the discomfort I'm feeling is because of them. And that's a huge issue for people. Yeah. And how do we teach them coping skills rather than changing their constitution is, you know, something, something to think about. And I appreciate you bringing up this whole purpose driven part of the conversation because, you know, I spent the last probably decade more narrowly focused in suicide prevention. And that's one of the things that we often saw where I would study these fatality reports after a veteran died by suicide. And we would see that they sort of lost their purpose or they felt like they no longer had a mission and they didn't really feel like they belonged. Like, what is my purpose for being here today or for being on this earth? Even like I, um, they would sort of lose their, their North star, so to speak. And so it is so important for us to find ways to have a purpose and have something like goal driven, you called it, but something that we are passionate about and that represents, you know, who we want to be, whether that's our next phase of life. And you see a lot of veterans entering law enforcement for that reason, or, you know, doing other, other important things for the veteran community that brings them that purpose. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I've heard, so when I was getting out, the first uh, therapist I went to was more on the side of, um, <clears throat> slow down, take some time for yourself, um, get used to being a regular person again, blah, blah, blah. And to be honest, uh, that put me in a worse depression than I was in before I went there. I'm like, hmm, so this okay. is, so this is it, huh? So I've, I've gone from being, you know, really good at this thing, which defined my character as a protector, which is, you know, rooted in the, in the male DNA, especially, and now I'm just supposed to wear fucking sweater vests and drink tea or some shit. I don't know. It just seemed very inauthentic to me, frankly. I didn't like it. Um, and it's – we're not used to putting ourselves before other people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's – I think it, it, it advances the course of nihilism in your life when you go from a very obvious purpose to no purpose at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you bring up also a good point. I don't know if this was true for you or not, but so much about finding a therapist is it's not easy, right? Mm. Like finding the right match. And I, I hear from a lot of people that will like try therapy once and they'll get connected with someone that just doesn't resonate with them. And, you know, just like any field, including my own, my own field has, you know, different types of people from all walks of life that might not always match well with certain (laughs) personality types and things. And like, if, if, you know, teaching self-care skills out of the gate when you're, you know, not ready for that at that moment and, you know, not knowing the veteran culture around protection and mm-hmm. saying, hey, put yourself first is, you know, and then they'll stop going to therapy because it'll just, it will turn them off from it so much. So, like, you almost have to test out and meet folks and, and get to know them a little bit before you, like, dive into the therapy part of it. I don't, I, I don't know if that's your experience or if you would agree yeah, with that. Yeah, for sure. Not. I went through a couple. Um, okay. Before, okay. before, fi- on, to be honest, I went through a couple before finding more advanced literature on CBT, and I kind of just went off on my own and, and did that afterwards. Which you know, I'm, I'm, I've always been kind of uh, an, an individually taught and motivated person, so that makes sense for me. Not everyone's going to have that experience, but I do think um, what might be super helpful is, uh, you know a veteran Angie's list for psychotherapy or for whatever, right? Like we don't have any ability to do that, to have a basic form on a website where somebody can go to a therapist and give all their thoughts on them, how the meeting went, what they pushed, what they didn't push and blah, blah, blah. So I, 
as somebody who needs stuff can go read those reviews and try to figure out what might work for me. You know what I mean? Right. Even, um, you know, some female veterans might prefer a female therapist and male or vice versa. Um, they might prefer a vet, like some vets go into their second career path and become therapists. They might prefer one of their own to, um, or they may prefer someone who's, um, has no connection with the veteran community at all. And they want to like teach them it throughout the course of therapy. Mm. So you're right. Like even some of the basic demographics would matter when you're choosing one. And it seems like there, there are folks that want to leave it all behind. Like I just want to go back and live in the suburbs and not deal with this shit anymore. And uh, you know, there should be something for those folks. But I, I, what I, what I know for an absolute certainty is that if whatever next phase in your life doesn't include some purpose that really matters to you, then you're fucked. Right. I mean, it's, and it's not just veterans. It's not any particular group. You see the same, the same uh, pathology that leads to uh, young males joining terrorist organizations or gangs or becoming mass shooters or committing suicide. It's, it's essentially the same, right? It's nihilism. They don't feel any kind of, uh, equity in in the community around them. Like I'm not part of this. So, uh, and then it starts to degrade where you're like, well, I'm just a burden on other people. So I'm just going to kill myself. Right. That that's the track that a lot of people take, or, uh, I'm not useful to anything. I believe in, uh, God or Allah or whomever else. So I'm going to go fucking fight for that. Or I'm going to fight for something. You're going to fight for something. And you have to yeah, choose, like, you have to be really smart about choosing what you're going to fight for these days. We talk about this in the field a lot in the context of, like, being connected and how important connectedness is. And, you know, from, from even when you're when you're early on and you're born, you're a member of this family. You're connected to this family. When you join a military unit, you're part of the 82nd mm-hmm. and this identity exists. And, and, and it is such a high risk factor for people who no longer feel connected and a sense of purpose so if i'm and if, if if you move into a county if you move to fairfax county county nearby my my house not too far from fairfax county and how do you feel connected in the county mm. like how do you plug in and when they can't and it's huge and it's no one's directing them oh you plug in by going and doing this and it's like self-motivated and you sort of have to figure it out and there's not real good connective tissue along the way it can be a really big risk factor i mean we say when people die by suicide, there's often like 20 to 25 factors mm. interplaying all at once. And you rattled off some of them like mission, purpose, belongingness, connection. Of course, we talked about mental health, sometimes substance abuse, um, um, unresolved early trauma, too, which, you know, we didn't talk about that. Like folks that enter the military with pre-existing traumas before they even come in. And it just happens all at once. And they have no way to buffer against it. Like. They, they, they have no problem solving skills or they've lost their ability to cope or they, they don't have a strong family of origin or partner that helps them. Just nothing. No protective factors is sort of the word we use in the field. It, it results in a really high risk situation. Sure. Yeah. And I think this is not unique to the veteran community, by the way. This is you, you could map these same, uh, 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 I guess, symptoms or stressors or, yeah, or, yep. or, or even, yeah. even the outcomes you could map onto pretty much any community if, if exposed to the same elements. Um, but I think one thing that is different about the veteran community is that under stress, we developed out of necessity the, the 
instinct to rely on the people around us. And I think more importantly that they rely on us, um, to, I think we put too much emphasis on, uh, uh, the fact that there are people out there for us, like you can, you've got buddies you can call, blah, 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 and less emphasis on your buddies are counting on you because that's how we defined that relationship. It wasn't we, – we didn't define the relationship in our small teams that came to define our lives and our character by how much they could do for us. We defined it by I'm going to be there for that person no matter what the politics or situation is because that's what's required of me as a human being, right? So – Maybe it sounds uh, aggressive or, or callous or harsh, but a guy that's spiraling like that, like, hey, people are fucking counting on you, dude. Stop fucking around. Get your shit together is a much more effective motivational tool than, hey, there's, it'll, it'll be okay, buddy, because we don't want to hear that shit. Well, I think what you're also talking about is just the power of peer support. Mm. And, I, and you're right, it is not a veteran-specific issue. Like 123 people die every day by suicide, of which 17, between 17 and 20 are active duty and National Guard or Reserve or veteran status. But So it, 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 it permeates across all demographic groups. But peer support, particularly within the veteran community, matters. And this idea of like... Um, not only like get yourself together, sometimes I think you have to like help them get themselves together. And they're often willing to accept the help from you more so than maybe like mm. a civilian, you know, person who's being paid to help them. Like, you know, Kita, Susie, social worker over here might not resonate with them as much as like someone like yourself who's been there, done that and can like walk them to the help, maybe help them get started when they're at their lowest point. Some may need that little bit more handholding just to get to the to the right place initially. Sure. So one of the things that I encourage people to do when they're going through uh, periods of great stress like that is to, um, you know, you want to triage. If you're spiraling, obviously uh, there's, re- there's, there's people you can call now to get immediate help and stuff like that. But if you're, if you're starting to notice that things aren't going well, uh, it doesn't hurt to find somebody else <clears throat> who's currently going through the same shit you are and f- like, creating a little uh, fire team and then going to get help together. Right. Not, yeah. oh, not, that's terrific. Yeah. not, not at the bar, by the way, like right. that, <laughs> right. that, that might, that might be the first meeting that you have to establish comms and everything. But afterwards you need to go talk to some people that know what the fuck they're talking about. Yeah. We wouldn't recommend that sort of um, treatment. You're right. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad we can have a little humor about it, but it, in all seriousness, yeah. Like sometimes a peer is the first step. And then, yeah, you going together is just, that's a beautiful way to do it because it says, Hey, this is happening to you. It's happened to me. And, uh, here's where I've been. I'm going to take you with me. We're going to do it together. Yeah. I mean, I think it, um, it kind of neutralizes the shame element a little bit to know that somebody else is going through the same shit you are, especially somebody that you're, uh, intimately familiar with somebody you've been in combat with, especially, um, but yeah, it's, it's, to me, that's always seemed like a better idea. I, one of the things that I like to say is if you can turn your pain and suffering into empathy for other people, you can save your life and their life. And it's, you know, a lot of people have said similar things over the years. Gandhi said, if you want to truly find yourself, uh, uh, immerse yourself in the service of others and things like that. Mm-hmm. Or, or, I'm sorry, lose yourself in the ser- service of others. Um, a little bit reductive probably, but in principle, I think these things make a lot of sense because it's 
it's how we're wired as human beings to help one another. You know, one of the, one of the principles in the citizen ethos is I'll do something every day to help my country, my countrymen are all men. And I think, uh, you know, there's a couple of things going on there. One, it identifies that we are indeed purpose driven. And I would say people that people that volunteer to go to war for their country might have that instinct a little bit stronger than other folks. Right. And then, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, my country, my countrymen are all men is what we in the business like to call Ken selection. It's how we decide who is and is not family to us, right? Whatever process that might happen, whether you're, it's your actual family or whether you have an adopted family or you're in a group home and the people you experience trauma with are the people you like uh, or whatever it is, but we get to decide we're smart enough um, as individuals now to decide who, who we're going to be involved with. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, more importantly, who we're going to assist throughout life because before modern policing existed, there was like an unspoken bond between all people in a particular area. If some asshole comes around and tries to steal our stuff or our cattle or, you know, try to murder people, we're all going to get together and go shoot that dude in the face. You didn't need a rule to say that. You didn't need a government institution to say that. It just was, right? Because we are community-based creatures. And I think most people at their, at, intrinsically understand that you have to there have to be rules of some sort. Whether or not they're formal is, is another question, but this is how we feel comfortable as people, right? So Ken Selection is a big part of that. We decide who, like what we are, and then who belongs to that group, and then we defend that group. That's, that's how all of human history has happened, unless somebody is like a pathological lunatic or something like that. But for the most part, that's how it works. And I, this is one that I like because we, we, we're in a situation now where everybody's got a, a, a voice more so than ever before, right? Because of social media and, and, you know, things like that. And how are you using that? You know what I mean? Are you a net positive or a net negative in society? I think. And I, I, I really do feel like one of the straws that breaks the camel's back in veteran depression and suicide is when that depression turns to I'm useless. I'm just a net negative on other people. So I may as well get out of their way. Right. That's why you start seeing people. They'll they'll start intentionally sabotaging relationships. They'll start giving their shit away. Those are big indicators that things are going downhill for them rapidly. But you know, if you can, if you're able to refocus yourself and the people around you into like, Hey, there's plenty of good stuff that we can still be doing here. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I think that's a pretty, I think it's a pretty effective tool at staving off some of these uh, symptoms that people experience. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about so many different things in, in, in the field. I mean, community members helping each other, certainly not, not killing the one guy that's the bad guy, but like community members helping each other is at the foundation of, of so much in our society. And, you know, there's a theory that out there that I've heard that says like, we've, we as a society have gone away from that. Like people don't know their neighbors enough and they're sort of living in a living alone, so to speak. Um, but I think that that is important for people to feel a sense of community. And when people are struggling with suicide, 
they do feel like there's a burden um, having like done plenty of suicide assessments, especially with active duty members and veterans. I'll hear them say like, I, I, um, I'm a, I, they'll even say the word, I feel like I'm a burden on this unit. I'm not carrying my weight. I'm not carrying enough in my pack and I can't. And therefore, you know, I don't deserve, I'm not, I'm not um, worthy of being here anymore. My only way out, yes, is, is to, you know, die by suicide. And so one of the things that you reminded me of though was, I don't know if, have you heard over the years during any of your talks with people that have been into therapy about narrative therapy, just like learning your story? Uh, in terms of narrative <clears throat> therapy at all? Yeah, well, I don't know if I heard it called that, but I went through some of that when I was doing CBT. Like you, you would pick out um, particular events that seemed traumatic during your time in service and then write narratives about them. And then uh, also uh, the guy had me write one about what I believed and wanted to be in life. Like what were the core elements of my personality that, yeah. from my perspective? Yeah. Yes, this idea, and, and I think the part of that exercise was about making meaning mm. and how do we make meaning of our trauma or meaning of our, our life and and it, even in the context of being a survivor and all that service members and veterans have been through after multiple deployments, I mean, truly they are a survivor and all that they've done. And so learning your story and then using it in a way to help others, which is the reciprocal part of what you were talking about, how people who are struggling will start to help somebody and by helping someone it helps them and it's like this very reciprocal feedback loop and they get better in the service of helping others so i think you bring up good points for the field and something that you know it's important for all veterans that that listen to your 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 podcast to kind of think about like your service to others and how that in fact will help you get to the next level sure i mean it's like uh, well a couple of points on that one yeah. uh, we all not we, not all, but mo a lot of people, I would say good people in general, instinctively think to do mild, kind things for each other, like hold the door or something or whatever. Yeah. Um, that it seems like an instinct. I think it's very uncomfortable to watch somebody else suffer in front of you or mm -hmm. uh, to be rude to someone that's in front of you. I think most people, generally speaking, are pretty uncomfortable with things like that. That's why there's so much awkwardness in modern society where people won't even make eye contact and talk to each other because whatever they've been taught, everything's offensive. But <clears throat> um, that's one thing. But what kind of person – I like to ask people these rhetorical questions just to get the brain moving because what kind of person are you where you – notice a puddle and step over it and don't turn around and tell the next guy behind you that there's a fucking puddle there. You know what I mean? Once, once you have the information, you have, you now have the responsibility to share that information, whether it's success or whether it's how to navigate failure, right? It doesn't matter. And what we know from both biology and psychology is the cure is almost always found in the disease, right? Like we, that's what an immunization really is. And for a lot of us, we're beyond the point of, I guess, inoculation for some of this stuff, but we're certainly not beyond the point of therapeutics, right? And, and in this case, therapeutics are the coping mechanisms that we learn and things like that. But the, the lessons that you learn going through that process is what they are what will define you for the rest of your life. You know what I mean? How you transition your old purpose into your new purpose will define you for the rest of your life. And uh, I just, I hear too much 
from people in the veteran community when they go in for therapy. One, like you said before, it's hard to find a good therapist or not good's not the right word, but one that matches up with your needs. Yes, uh, a good match. Yep. And, and then, of course, with the system being as overwhelmed as it is, that process can take eight to 12 months sometimes because it takes several weeks to get appointments and blah, blah, blah. It's all very difficult to navigate. Um, and that is unsatisfactory across the board for the field. Like this is how we lose people through the cracks. I mean, it's a, the fact that we have a critical shortage of mental health providers. And then um, sometimes even we have providers in the field that aren't well-trained or that don't understand the veteran nuances and, and all that they have to learn from, from doing mental health with a veteran um, further complicates the issue and creates problems. So these are like things we're trying to work on in the national level that are not easy fixes, but like we should never accept like anything longer than I think probably five to seven days for a mental health appointment if you're not in crisis. And of course, if mm. you're in crisis, you need one right away. And I'm sure you've done work with the 988 mm. rollout of the the new national three-digit number for crisis support. But if you're in crisis, of course, immediately. If you're not, I think three, five on a bad day, seven days, but veterans and, and even anybody waiting 30, 60 you know, plus days for an appointment is just not something we should accept and a, a hard nut to crack, but we have to get better at that. Sure, and I think one of the ways <clears throat> that we get better is uh, understanding that the individual being treated can be a force multiplier. You know what I mean? Uh, like it's, it takes years to train and then get experienced the person to be in the field doing what it is that you do. That's not, there's no wave of any magic wand that's going to make that shit happen any quicker than it's going to happen. Right. Um, it's long periods of study and yes, I'll take, but I hear what you're saying because there's a, um, I've had it, I've thought about this for a good number of years now, this like continuum of care hmm. and, Family members are on that continuum, peer support, veterans that you've actually deployed with, like your vets from your community, mm. another vet that's not in your community. Maybe when we match like Vietnam era vets with, you know, um, OEF, OIF vets, like there's a continuum and parts and pieces of the continuum might work for some and not all. But just singularly relying on these full on up round LCSW psychologists and the higher end of the continuum um, does create these backlogs in the system. So I think we do better when we like let people plug in in other spaces, particularly while they're waiting or while mm. we're um, trying to find out what works for them. Sure. It seems like uh, there, a lot of people are, are making effort toward that, but it seems like the industry standard is to bridge the gap with drugs of some sort, right? Um, and it, for, so far as I can tell from all the available latest research, um, SSRIs have been a pretty bad thing for mental health in America, at least. I don't know. I haven't really looked into other countries that much, but um, I remember being prescribed them and not feeling great about it. That didn't last very long. Um, but a lot of people do kind of get trapped in that, in that cycle because it's, do I take these drugs that uh, are available now and relatively easy to get and, uh, uh, allow me to do some of the things that I want to do that matter to other people, like be there for my family, for example, without losing my shit sometimes. Um, I think a lot of people get presented with a choice. It's either drugs or, or, you know, then you're just going to lose everything. 
And I think that's a, a horrible decision to have to make. Yeah, you know, I'm a social worker by training, not a psychiatrist, so I'm, I'm by no means an expert on the drugs. But I'll tell you what I do know about it is it's very individual. Mm. Um, and what works for one may not work for another. And it's it's also a bit of an um, art as well. Like, I mean, people have this tendency to think like, oh, you're going to take a medication, you'll get better. And it takes like six to eight weeks to get to a therapeutic level. And then it might not be, it might not work for you. So you might be like trying different ones over time, which is what starts to create the complications with it, I think. And then also um, just drugs alone, I think is never a good solution. So just like medication alone, like if somebody is taking medication for part of like a psychological issue, I always think it fares well when we're doing like trauma with med trauma. What am I talking about? When we're doing therapy mm -hmm. with meds together and it's being closely monitored over time with also a plan for potentially not no longer leading needing the medication. Mm -hmm. So again, like you'll have to get like a psychiatrist on the show to talk more about um you know, the, the medication aspect alone, but having treated a lot of service members and veterans that are on medication, these are just some of the things that I see that that work well or that the vets will share that they're struggling with. The side effects are also an issue. Um, keeping up with the consistency of when and how to take them is an issue. So it's not something you should take lightly. Sure. I mean, I, you know, sometimes you have to triage and uh, blunt the, the, the bleeding or the, the nerve or bone break or whatever it happens to be stabilized, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. but I, I gotta, a good analogy. I gotta be honest, any kind of long-term pharmaceutical treatment for these issues is to me not effective. I mean, I just can't imagine how it would be because you're just ignoring the issue. You know what I mean? You're dull, you're, you're dulling the effect of the issue without ever having addressed it. And I certainly, Paired with talk therapy, maybe sometimes it could be effective in the short-term basis. But I don't know anybody who's been on pharmaceuticals long-term who's addressed anything, right? It's a, it's a huge crutch. And it's, I think that's another issue. Like when, I remember when I first went into sick call to, to go get my head checked out because I was having headaches and shit. <clears throat> and they wanted to give me uh, a psychological review as well because of the, it was a 2000, mid-2008, and they were starting to make the connection between TBI and psychological issues. So it was a standard practice sure. at the time. Yes, yes. But uh, I remember the initial interview. I'm like, I, I just, they asked me about my symptoms and blah, blah, blah. And I wrote a bunch of stuff down. And uh, this is for the psychiatry appointment after the brain scans and all this shit. And I'm like, don't even bother giving me pills because I'm not taking that shit. Because I had seen all my buddies around me start to get on them. And it, mm -hmm. was, it was just not working. It was like... <laughs> I, th and this brings up a, a question that I, I want to ask that I'm not sure there's an answer to. I don't know that there's a, th this is less of a question, but uh, I don't know that there's a way <clears throat> to, let's say you're dealing with a 20 year infantry person or special operator. I'm not sure there's a way to make that work over 20 years. Like how could you possibly be exposed to that much stress and come home for six to 12 months at a time and live a normal life in between. I don't know that that's possible. It doesn't seem like it would be right. I mean, it would take a high amount of skill to be popping in and out of those lifestyles at, at a frequent basis like that. And where, if you have to lose something on one side or the other, you can't really afford to lose it in the combat scenario, right? Life or death sort of is where you're going with that, right? Sure. And then, yeah. then you have this A-type 
who comes home and is performing at 80% at home and they, they're going to feel that they're going to feel the lack of their purpose being met. You know what I mean? I just don't know. I don't know that it's possible and I don't, this isn't to be nihilistic or, or anything, but I do like to be realistic about some of these problems. So I have a lot of friends in the special operations community and a lot of their wives are my friends as well. And they reach out to me on a regular basis about stuff like this. And I'm just like, man, I don't know. Like you might just have to deal with it for a while, to be honest. And I appreciate though that you're, that they're reaching out to you and that you're talking about it because sometimes just like not talking about it and keeping things in private and thinking they're just going to magically go away is not the answer either. So so, while we don't have any great solutions for it, at least like we're coming together as a community, we're talking about how hard it is, we're trying to support each other. Um, it is an abnormal family constitution to be having someone in and out and in and out. And meanwhile, life goes on. Children have birthdays and they move from being a toddler to a school age and developmentally things happen across the lifespan. And and um, missing milestones and then you know being there not being there and and all of that is is not easy so you know supporting one another and talking about it i think is like it's it, it a first step although i i know it feels like it's not enough mm. um it is a good first step to normalizing what's going on for that special operator community sure and we're we're kind of in a a new i what i think is a new phase in human history it, it hasn't always been the case that you had a large amount of both kinetic and career soldiers that used to not be the thing. It was a, you were a farmer or a banker or whatever the fuck. Right. And then when it was time for war, you came and trained up and went to war and then you came back home and went on with your life. Now you're seeing five, 10, 15 deployments over the course of 20 years. And that's not something that we as a species have dealt with before. It's never been like that in all of human history, unless you count hordes like the Mongol horde or, uh, you know, Alexander the Great or something who just traveled around fucking people up all the time. But those people weren't like they would be gone for eight years at a time and then come back and see their families again. This is a completely separate situation. They weren't dipping in and out of two very, very different realities. Yeah, I think um, one of the things to kind of think about with this um, has to do with like the length of the deployments. Mm. And so, I mean, I think there's some difference between coming in and out frequently, but for short periods, 30 days, 60, even 90 days. There's something different about that than like leaving for 12 months and 18 months, coming back for two or three, and then leaving again for 12 months, coming back for two. Like the length where you're missing these huge chunks of family traditions, rituals, um, soccer games, all of the the that sort of stuff for longer periods of time, I think make it more difficult versus, you know, some of the military services that do short stints mm. and there's a touch point back. Well, we used to do that. So the 82nd used to do three to four month deployments. Now it's well, as soon as the surge began, it became 12 to 15 month deployments after that. More of the norm, right? Yeah. And the, which is, uh, Obviously, it doesn't work. And we, we even at the contractor level, we've seen a lot of the contract firms uh, by necessity because the DOD required it, uh, dial back their deployments to 30 or 60 days in most cases. Um, so it, it, it did seem to have some impact. So there is probably something there. Yeah, I think that those folks probably fare better when even if they are going to be gone frequently, that it's shorter in duration. Mm. 
and they're able to keep that connection going versus the longer ones that we saw during most of OIF and OEF where we just saw these like tremendously long deployments and yeah. not uncommon to get in a room full of full of service members and them having over the course of 20 de- uh, years having you know deployed 18 times or something you know well how do um <clears throat> what do you read from that cuz to me it seems like the obvious uh uh lesson there is that prolonged exposure to extreme awareness and stress are are really the primary underlying factors of post-traumatic stress as we experience it. I think that's true. But aside from that, what else do you glean from that? Well, I think that the um, the idea of coming and going for long periods of time and not giving you enough time to truly resettle back in, because what you'll hear from the troops is that they come back and they know they're only going to be back a few months before they go again. So they just kind of hang on and they don't really deal with any of their issues, particularly their trauma. There's not enough time to unpack it and they see the next deployment on the horizon. So it was just sort of like, all right, let me just hang on white knuckling it before I leave again. And, um, and then I'm back in my comfort zone, as you've described the fight or flight. And this is where I, I perform well. I'm good at it. I'm with my battle buddies who I can trust. And I know this environment, I, I feel safer here doing this mission than I do back home. You'll hear them say, so I think like not having enough time in between to not only reconstitute with the family, but to deal with some of your own issues in a more proactive way does create a longer uh, 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 struggles over the long haul. That's when we see the veteran who hasn't gotten any help. They've been in for 20, 22 years. They get out and they're they're at their first mental health appointment and they have sort of stuffed and not dealt with all of these years and years of trauma and they start to unpack it and we see just high, high risk situations where you're finally um, out of the service, but have no mission, no purpose, and you've not unpacked anything over the mm. course of 20 years, and you've been exposed to some serious, <laughs> some serious combat and things like that. Do you have any experience with uh, psychotropic drugs are becoming really popular now? Um, mostly, I think a, lo- a lot of it is because of it's the end thing right now, certainly, but um, I personally have had a lot of success with with psychedelics um even before i was in the military uh, i had a lot of success using that as a as a self treatment kind of situation although i wouldn't necessarily recommend that for other people but there are a lot of studies going on. i mean I, w- I lived in oakland in the early 2010 mid 2010s um and i remember stanford started doing experiments on uh psilocybin and mdma in like 2012 2013 um for veterans especially and now it started kind of making its way to the mainstream and there i understand the the pharmacology of some of them uh like how they work ibogaine for example which um will reset things like opioid receptors for for example uh pretty much overnight um we've we've put probably half a dozen people through Ibogaine treatments who are addicted to either prescription drugs or heroin who are still not using today, right? And, and found it relatively easy to stop for reasons like that. Um, but it seems like the industry in general is a lot more uh, aware of and, and accepting of these types of treatments. Now, I wonder if you've had an experience with that. No, you know, I've not stayed on top of that so much, like the psych- psychedelic side and the treatment using psychedelic drugs. I'm, I'm not an expert on it and I've not stayed on, on on top of it, but I am interested in continuing to see the research that unfolds and comes out and how it's being used. And 
and all things like that. So no, I wish I knew more about it, but I just don't. Well, we have plenty of people that can tell you about it if you're interested in that. Um, but it seems like it's mostly veterans starting companies to do it, which oh, is okay. What, okay. kind of what you would expect, right? I mean, um, that that's one of the things that I encourage people to do. If you're if you're struggling like that and you find something that works for you, you really need to tell other people because you never know, you know, what secret you learned, even if it has, even if you don't understand what happened, just give people the data and somebody will figure out what it was that made that successful. And if you're one of the people that can figure out what makes those things successful, that's what a business is. You see a, a, a problem and you create a solution and monetize the solution. That's what a business is, right? Not forget about PTSD or veterans or suicide. Or sure, that sure, sure. Yeah. That's yeah. just, that's how business works in general. So <clears throat> it's not surprising to me to see that pop up a lot. Um, from what is it that you're working on right now that you, uh, what, what lessons have you learned over the last decade or so? And what, how are you pushing those lessons into, uh, into policy now? Yeah, I appreciate the question because I am trying to focus more at, um, at the policy level. Like I've been out of direct care for many, many years now. So I've been working largely on, you know, the, the power of policy and trying to think through setting the right policies for broad scale implementation and change. So whether that's, um, you know, everything from training mental health providers in the latest evidence-based practices, like you and I talked about CBT, but certainly there are others, or setting the standards for the field so that people know, for example, if, if veterans come in for treatment, here are what we know works best. These 10 sort of set of standards that um, you know, these are the type of treatments that should be applied. This is the type of continuity of care over time. These are their needs. Kind of setting standards like that um, are sort of top on my list. And then I do, I am continuing to be um, concerned about things you and I spoke about, like stigma reduction and trying to make sure people know that it's okay if you're not okay. And, you know, getting care um, is, is available. Uh, the prevention of suicide works, getting people to the right place and getting them what they need matters. And even measuring their care once they come in, like what, like setting the standards for the right type of tools that are used um, with veterans when they enter therapy so that it is done in a very, um, um, I think, careful way with a, an eye towards the best tools that work and, and monitoring that over time. So we see that it's working. So they're not just in care forever. Or they're not just on medication forever. And, mm. and, um, and you know, I, I participate on these um, in this sort of out of the box intervention with a nonprofit um, that I'm associated with where, where we bring veterans back for reunions. I, um, I greatly appreciate kind of innovation and out of the box solutions like that, where we can connect veterans for peer support and, um, re-energize those connections they had when they were connected on active duty in a particular unit. And then they can carry those back into their regular lives after their reunion. So just continuing to be passionate about veteran mental health and making sure that we're, we're leaving no rock unturned when it comes to, um, fighting that fight, I guess you could say. And the, <clears throat> the organization you're talking about, is that, uh, operation resiliency? Yes, this is Operation Resilience, and it's part of it's part of the Independence Fund, which is a nonprofit focused on serving the needs of catastrophically injured veterans. But there's a sort of one program within the larger nonprofit where we we reconstitute units and bring them in for a weekend of 
physical fitness, psychological fitness, spiritual fitness, and and even some social fun and friendship. Sure. Um, well, this has been great. Tell, can you can you tell people where they can find these resources if they're looking for them? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you're looking at like a veteran reunion or pulling your unit back together, I would go to the independencefund.org. Um, 988 is always a good resource. Um, this is the the three-digit number if you're in crisis that anybody can call. You press one if you're a veteran because you'll get a veteran-trained responder on the other end of that call. And then also, I think, you know, the VA has a number of good resources associated with Make the Connection where if you if you go to the to Google and you just enter you know veteran affairs make the connection you'll see vet, you'll see videos of real veterans like yourself telling their story and you may resonate with those stories and be able to sort of think through how your story connects to theirs and how to potentially get help uh, so those are are few of the good resources what about if you're a family member or a fellow veteran maybe that's not dealing with anything but you want you're trying to find resources for a buddy or family member yeah, these will help with with friends and family members as well. Like okay. 980, you can definitely use. Um, you know, the VA also has a caregiver program, so I would look into that if you're actually providing ongoing care for someone. That's usually not the case, though, where you're like in an official caregiving capacity. Um, but otherwise, there's the Tragedy Assistance Program, TAPS, which is a good resource for family members who are dealing with grief and loss. And uh, give me a quick rundown on the uh, Columbia Lighthouse Project. Oh, yes, yes, yes. No, I appreciate you for asking. So the Columbia Lighthouse Project is a project associated out of Columbia University, and this is about screening for suicide risk. So it's um, uh, the tool, it's often referred to as the Columbia Protocol, but this is a tool where we teach people how to ask the questions you know, are you thinking of ending your life by suicide? A lot of times people will dance around it and sort of, you know, think like, are are you, you just want it to be over? Are you looking to end it? And that is like absolutely not what we recommend in mm. the field. So this is like a certain particular set of questions where if they answer yes to the first two, which I can sort of give you the link if you're willing to push it out, sure. and then you go ahead and ask the other few. But if they answer no to the first two, then you don't go and ask the rest. But it's really about like, do you have the means to end your life? Do you have an intent? Do you have an intent on dying? Like, do you wish you would fall asleep and not wake up? So it really gets at the issue, the issues under the issue, um, means, intent, and overall plan in such a way that there's um, a high level of validity that someone might be at low, moderate, or severe risk mm. based on how they answer these questions. And so I um, have a colleague, Dr. Kelly Posner, who's developed the protocol at Columbia, and, and we work on implementing it across um, broad swaths of federal system mm. and private sector. And even like everyday vets can use it sure, with each yeah. other. Yeah. yeah, that was I was going to ask, is this something you would recommend for uh, people who are familiar with the people to, to use as well? Yeah, it's just such an easy tool for anybody to use. Sure. Um, well, look, I appreciate you coming on today. This is a big issue in uh, not just in the veteran community, but, you know, widespread throughout American society and Western society at large right now. Um, <clears throat> and not only is it a tragedy that we lose people before it's their time to go, but it's an even bigger tragedy, in my opinion, that we lose what that person would have given back to our community. You know what I mean? Um, so if you're out there and you know somebody needs help, 
here are all the resources you can use for that. If you're out there and you need help, you got to take it into your own hands and go find some help. Um, this isn't about changing who you are. It's not about losing your teeth. If you want to call it that, it's not about dulling your senses. It's about learning to, uh, control yourself. Ultimately, that's, what's going to become important throughout the rest of your life about, uh, you know, just being disciplined and effective as, as, and as purposeful as you can be. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about all this today. Thank you for having me and being willing to talk about mental health and suicide prevention and substance abuse and everything in between. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.